uh, wise living. This is our fourth message in wise living. And we, we learned that it was a book written by Solomon, who was the king. So it was written by a king to his sons, who were to be future kings. And it was not only just any random kingdom, it was king being king over God's covenant people. We're moving on. And today's passages... Um, have kind of collectively titled themselves in my message as wisdom, work, and wealth. And on the surface, this just seems like, okay, Tim's finally preaching on something practical, something we can just understand and apply immediately to our lives. Uh, but this passage, these, uh, these topics are no less spiritual than a discussion of Christ's crucifixion or a discussion of putting on the new self or anything else that we find in the New or Old Testament. <clears throat> we learned in Proverbs chapter 1 that wisdom calls out in the street. She invites you and me to come and ask of her to humble ourselves, being foolish and simple as we are. She says, how long will you be simple? How long will you be foolish? Come and ask and I will pour up my spirit on you. And so the call to wisdom is not a call to join some elite club. It's not that. It's not a call uh, to learn the deep and dark secrets of humanity. That's not what it's about. The call to wisdom is instruction for living practically as God's people in order that and to demonstrate and advance the reign and lordship of Christ by, again, promoting justice, equity, and righteousness. Wise living is to support and uphold those things in the world. That's wisdom, justice, equity, and righteousness. So we advance the reign of Christ through wise living by the power that he supplies in the Holy Spirit, right? Wisdom says, I will pour my spirit out on you. It's not something that we do in our own strength, but we do it through the strength that, that Christ supplies. But because of that, our lives all come into view. There's no part of our lives that get to squeak outside of the scope of wise living, of the scope of belonging to God. If you are a Christian, every single thing in your life is under the spotlight of God. Nothing gets to hide in the shadows. And as such, our sexuality comes into view. Our sexuality comes into view. Our money comes into view. Our time comes into view. And today, our work comes into view, our work. By God's design, his humanity, his heavens and his earth were created to reflect his ways. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave Adam <clears throat> a space in the garden and gave him dominion over the garden. So humanity is, has been set out to be an extension of God's reign on the earth. Now, in our fallen world where sin has corrupted everything, that vision of the reign of Christ is now described as wise living in contrast with foolishness or sinfulness. There's no such thing as a, as a philosopher who's wise in his writings and yet cruel to the poor or, or unfair to his um, underlings or dishonest to his boss. There's no such thing as wisdom detached from righteousness. And so we come now to the subject of work, which the Proverbs are, are not shy about speaking about. Work and labor is a human reality, right? It's, 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 it's just part of the fabric of what it means to be a man or woman. 
And wealth is kind of inseparably associated with work. We generally look at work as producing wealth or productivity in some way. And so we need to ask, when we look at our world, how should we think about work as Christians? What does it mean to think rightly about labor and work in general? There's, There's many ditches that we can fall into, but the first thing we need to ask is, when we look at the idea of work in general, should the church set about overturning the general consensus that work is necessary? Should we go about somehow overturning that and setting up some alternate type of kingdom? Is that our job as Christians? Is that how we think about work? Or, maybe I'm showing my cards a little bit here, but or would we rather work and speak about work in such a way that we demonstrate who God is to the world? That we demonstrate what work is truly supposed to be and supposed to look like? Because if we do, I think that we can draw attention to God's goodness. We can draw attention to the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I I think in our day and age, I think we're more in danger of ignoring the Christian implications on work than we are of over-spiritualizing them. Because that's not my goal here is to say like, well, let's just, let's elevate everything off to some theoretical level and over-spiritualize everything. Like like my framing of this house is a metaphor for the such and such and so and so. No, very often your work is, is, is exactly what it looks like. If you're stitching up somebody's hand, that, that is what you are doing. It's not necessarily a metaphor for some higher spiritual reality. It's just a good thing that you are stitching up somebody's hand. And I had that happen one time, and I'm thankful for that work that was put into my hand. Or if you are collecting garbage from the street, that is your work. If you are programming something to help employees get paid uh, on, a, on a regular basis, hopefully you didn't work for the Phoenix um, but we, we want to do things in such a way that it draws attention to who God is. The Proverbs speak about work second most of all subjects that it touches on. Did you know that? Second most. There's only one subject spoken of more often than work, and that's next week. And if you want to find out what that is, you can do some reading, and it'll probably jump off the pages at you. But join us next work for Proverbs' number one subject. But for now, work. So let's talk about the Bible and work. Where is work first mentioned in the scriptures? Where is the first time labor is first mentioned in the scriptures? You got it, Dustin. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At some moment of God's choice, of his choosing, he chose to fashion from nothing. Remember, there was nothing before he created except him. He chose to fashion from nothing the known universe and all of its constituent parts, all of the elements that we see in the universe today. All matter, all material, all that is seen and all that is unseen. God created everything. We learn about that also, and that's repeated in John chapter 1, that everything was created through Christ. And there was nothing made that was not made through Christ. So we also recognize that, God, that Christ was in the beginning, present with God in this act of creation Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was made by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. God didn't go down to Home Depot and pick up a bunch of, you know, ionic material and fashion the mountains and the water. Okay, he didn't do that. He created what is visible from nothing, 
from nothing. And what we need to understand about that was that this is the quintessential act of work. This is the quintessence of work, to produce. But the amazing thing is that God produced from nothing, and everything that we do as work is a flow, it's an outflow of God's original work. So how how are we going to understand work? We can only work because God first worked. He gave us a world to work in. He gave us a world to to fix and to repair and to cultivate and to adapt and modify and beautify. And all of our work flows from that original work. We use his stuff. We use his air, his wood, his water, his rocks, his elements, his electricity even. It's like that, that famous... Um, there's a joke, I say famous, but it's a joke my dad told me, so it's probably the opposite of famous, <laughs> where these scientists are, are excited in their lab, and they're trying to reproduce life um, in, a, in a tube from nothing, and um, eureka, this eureka moment, and they run out of the cafeteria, and they say, we did it, you know, we created life from dirt, and suddenly this booming voice comes and says, get your own dirt, <laughs> Right? That's the essence of creation. That there's not, even if we can so-called create life in a lab, we have flesh and blood because God first created. The irony there is just so amazing. Everything comes from God and all of our work flows from God's original creation. And you know what? The Proverbs even speak about this creation in Proverbs 8, 22. Listen to this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. It's, it's the personification of wisdom. And many have read into this. This is actually Christ at the side of God creating. At the first of his acts of old, ages ago I was set up. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. Didn't we just read about that in Psalm 104? When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is the creation. This is the act of God's wise and good creation. When he created in Genesis 1, we learn that he said, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. Until he made you and I, or Adam and Eve, and he said, it is very good. God's creation was done in perfection. With all wisdom, he created everything that is seen. When God first put Adam and Eve into the garden... He gave them a command to work, didn't he? He said, you are to cultivate the garden. Cultivate is actually from the same root word as we get our word culture. That, that, has, that has profound implications for us as Christians. That in cultivating that which is around us, we are actually culture makers. And so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail, but just something to, for you to think about. But the point was that part of God's perfect creation included, in the very beginning, labor and work. An assignment for Adam and Eve. It wasn't just, we think of paradise as being the absence of work, don't we? We think, oh, if only just, I bet Adam and Eve just had it so good. They just didn't set an alarm in the morning. They would just wake up and kind of wander, pick 
certain fruits. Um, you know, they didn't have to mow the grass. But this is not the paradise that God first set up. He said, your job is to cultivate it. And so that might have meant, I don't really know. I'm not a gardener. I'm not even going to pretend to know. But they did things to make the garden better. They did things to maintain and, and restrain its beauty. Sometimes we think of uh, wild, um, untouched wilderness as being the highest expression of creation. And there is, there is certainly beauty in raw creation. But according to God, the most beautiful is the addition of human creativity, human ingenuity as an extension of God's reign to creatively shape and manipulate things for the blessing of humanity. It was only after sin did God describe work as becoming tiresome and difficult. That was part of the curse of sin, right? He said, now the ground shall not yield up to you as it used to. I think farming used to just be a lot easier, okay? Or, or planting, it would just be like you didn't have to pesticide, you didn't really have to till the earth, you just kind of fling a seed in and you get a beautiful tree. I don't know. But it was work. But when sin came, God said, the earth is not going to cooperate with you like it used to. That must have been just kind of a bummer to hear. What's that going to be like? Well, it's like what it is today. Long hours, hard work. We still enjoy the blessing of labor, right? It's still, the earth still yields to us. We still enjoy the fruit of harvest, and we still enjoy the beauty of creation, but it's just harder now. But it remained. Before and after sin, uh, work had a purpose, and it existed which means the only way that we should work should serve as a demonstration of God's redeeming work of humanity, as well as it is possible to reflect God's intention for work. So recognizing God's original purpose in work and, and his original act of work, we should use this and leverage this in our lives to be conduits for the truth of the gospel of Christ. We're going to see a little bit how that works itself out a little bit more as we go along. The way that we work can have tremendous impact on whether or not those around you have any clue who God is. The way that you work can have a tremendous impact on whether or not the people around you have any clue who God is and whether or not God cares. One of the, one of the saddest things when you talk to somebody who doesn't know the Lord is to say, I, I just don't know if God cares about me. I don't know if God cares about this world. And yet wisdom is for instruction in wise dealing, justice, righteousness, and equity. So if we are living wisely and working wisely and advancing justice, righteousness, and equity, we are proof to the world that God does care. He cares about humanity. He cares about his people, lost and unlost or found. So when we consider work, the Proverbs kind of contrasts two basic groups. I love how in most cases, the world can be divided into one of two categories. And I'm not talking about political parties. I'm talking about people who know God and people who don't. There's two groups. The, number, the first group is char characterized uh, by diligence and work. Diligence and work, kind of going hand in hand. This is usually associated with honesty and wisdom or good character. The second group is characterized by laziness and evil, which is associated with deceit and foolishness or poor character. This is sort of how the Proverbs divides up um, how two different types of people view and associate themselves with work. 
So the Christian and work. How does a, a Christian think about work? I have, I have five things that I think the Proverbs gives us about work, and we're going to find out what Christ says about work. Number one, we should work. The Christian should work. This is the first in our outline of the Christian and work. There's two reasons. Number one, it, it reflects our purpose in the world. It reflects our belonging to Adam. It reflects that God originally gave a mandate to humanity that involved work. So it reflects our purpose in the world, and it also provides for our needs. Uh, Proverbs 10, and if you can flip quickly, you're welcome to, or if you'd like to just jot down the references, because I'm literally all over Proverbs today. I, I, didn't, I didn't have one section that did a really thorough job at the, the whole um, idea of work. Welcome, guys. Oh, no problem. So Proverbs 10.3. Proverbs 10.3 says the righteous will have food. Now you'll notice that very often Proverbs interchanges words for working and words associated with morality. So here it doesn't say that the hardworking will have food. It says that the righteous will have food because there's an assumption that righteousness is associated with labor and with work. So the righteous in Proverbs 10.3, the righteous will have food, but the craving of the wicked will be thwarted. In Timothy, Paul writes a, uh, a letter to a pastor, and he says, if a man is not willing to work, he's not willing to eat. Very basic association here between work and provision. God makes it very plain that work is to be our main means of provision. You know, very often we, we ask the Lord in the Lord's Prayer, you know, give us our daily bread as we, or give us our daily bread. And, and so, very often we can over-spiritualize God's provision. You know, well, I, I just, we need God to provide this. And very often there are things that we need that seem beyond our means, and I, I absolutely agree that we need to pray that God will provide. But it isn't just amazing that the Bible lays out that the, the ordinary means by which we are generally provided for is through our own work. It's through our own work. The righteous will have food, but the craving of the wicked will be thwarted. Um, and so what do we need? We need food, shelter, and clothing. Um, the Bible also makes clear in the New Testament that we should be content with these three things, food, shelter, and clothing. We in, in Canada, I was talking about this last night actually with, with Wynn, just trying to describe how rich we are in Canada, just how insanely rich we are. Because we take for granted that we have food, shelter, and clothing, but we think about all the other things that we don't have that somebody more wealthy than us might have, that second or third vehicle or that vacation home or the opportunity to you know, leave during the winter and go travel, things that were just unheard of, um, are unheard of to 90% of the world. We're just so wealthy that we've lost sight of what we truly need. And, and the Bible says that if we work, what we need will in general be provided in work, or sorry, food, shelter, and clothing. Proverbs 14.23 says that there is profit in much toil. There's profit in much toil. So the, the laborer, the one who works hard, receives profit. But, I, but what's the contrast? Idle talk leads to poverty. Um, you know, we can have a lot of great ideas about money-making schemes, right? But if it's just idle talk, it actually doesn't produce anything. Sometimes don't you wish you were just sitting in your living and you thought of a great idea and you could sell it to a company and just be a millionaire? That happens so infrequently that the Bible says if you're just sitting around talking about the things you wish you had or don't have, 
or just talking about great ideas, that will actually lead to poverty because most people are not willing to pay you to talk, um, or me, for that matter. Proverbs 10.5 says, He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. So the idea of work here is associated with, again, food production. In a society much more dependent on um, the cycles of the seasons, and they didn't have transport trucks to bring in avocados from you know, Florida, uh, they would depend on what they could actually grow. And so your work was associated very closely with whether or not you ate. And here we see in, the Proverbs, in Proverbs 10, 5, there's this idea that work, when it needs to be done, we should be doing it. Because there are opportunities, there are windows for doing work, and those windows close. We can't wait, you know, the, the sun here can't wake up long after harvest ends and the fields are bare and say, well, I think I'm, I'm motivated today. Well, it's kind of too late, according to the cycle of nature. And so there's work, when there's work to be done, we should be doing it. We need to have a mindset to respond and act rather than to put off. I think there's a word for that, it's procrastination. Sometimes we would just rather sleep or rest when work needs to be done. And I'm wrestling with that because I've been waiting for a dry day to rake my leaves. And I usually like to lie down on Sunday afternoons. And here's a dry day. And I'm like, but I want to lie down. But our leaves need to be raked. Um, so if any of you have children who are looking for something to do this afternoon. <laughs> but it's convicting. We need to work first and rest after. That's the pattern God set forth in creation. He worked for six days, and then he rested. He didn't rest and build up that strength, right? It, I mean, rest is important, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that too, but work when it's presented to us in the summer, when it's time to gather, when it's harvest and it's time to bring in, then we should work. We should work when we have the opportunity to. In fact, Jesus has a very fascinating um, description of this in John chapter 9. Uh, Jesus was often accused of actually blaspheming God and acting against uh, what, what they had understood about God. And Jesus continually reminded them that he was actually doing the work of the Father. He was there to continue on the work of the Father. But listen to this. Um, I just want to make sure I have the right spot here. So Jesus heals a man who is born blind and John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw Jesus, a, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus brings in this element of Life doesn't last forever. Your life doesn't last forever. My life doesn't last forever. The opportunity to do good, to work hard, to be the children of God is short. We, we just don't know what that window of opportunity will be. And Jesus says, as long as it is day, we need to do the works of him who sent us. We need to be, at, we need to be busy doing what the Father has given us to do. And Jesus certainly did that, right? He was invited uh, by Satan to bow to Satan, to get all these kingdoms, and to just kind of live the life of ease, right? Satan had tempted Christ 
to actually bypass the cross, Jesus' greatest work of all time. But Jesus said, no, 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 I've been sent to do a specific work, and now is my chance to do it. If I put my feet back now and, and defer to Satan and get these temporary little kingdoms given to me, I will have forfeited the result of the work that God gave me to do. Christ went through the work that he was given in order to purchase for himself redeemed humanity for eternity, something that would never have happened had he given into the temptation to Satan in the beginning and then in the garden at the end. Christ worked when he had to work, and because of that, we are his people. We are saved on account of his work. I just want to make clear before we get any further that I'm not just talking about going to your employer. I hope that you can see implied in these texts, this is not about where do you work, where do you go to work. That's where this applies. Our work is very often just what we do with our day. It's what we do with our day. It's how we wake up in the morning. It's whether or not we pray when we wake up. It's whether or not we love our kids when we wake up. It's whether or not we do the dishes. It's whether or not we take out the trash. It's whether or not we mow our grass and rake our leaves. It's whether or not we show up on time when we're asked to be there to help somebody move. Our work is what God has given us to do, no matter where that is, no matter how much you get paid or don't get paid for that. So whether you're retired or whether you're unemployed or whether you're disabled, it doesn't matter. There's no distinction in terms of value in God's in God's eyes or in his kingdom because we can all, no matter who we are, no matter where we work or don't work, we can exhibit every single one of these principles, every single one, and we'll see why and how. But whatever your station is, this includes you. So number one, we should work. We shouldn't avoid work. We should actually work. Number two, we should work hard. I think uh, in, in our culture today, we are very conditioned to look for work that pays the highest and asks the least of us. I've been on job hunts, and I'll tell you, that's how I narrow my search. What's the easiest job for the highest amount of pay and compensation, right? That's the way we're just kind of trained. You see on YouTube all the time, you know, get your, get your work week down to a four-hour work week. How? How? Why? Why? Should we aspire to that? as Christians? Should we aspire to make sure we work as little as possible? Now, in some ways, don't, hear, don't get me wrong, if we can strategically make a living and squeeze more time out for our families, for loving our families, or for doing uh, more ministry in, in your community, or having kids over to bless other families, or having more people over for dinner, like, if you want to leverage your life to, to strategically bless other people, then power to you. But I don't think that's the message that we hear from our culture. The message from our culture is work as little as possible so there's more time for you to indulge in you. And that's just, that's antithetical to the the pattern that scripture lays out. And, And God, who could have done everything in one day and taken six days off, he rather worked for six days and took one day off. Now, why would God do that? Because it's actually good for us. It's good for us to work. Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of the sluggard the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing but the soul of the diligent is richly supplied now the diligent the diligent means the person who keeps at it doesn't quit doesn't check out at 3:30 when the clock ends at 4 or doesn't you know cut corners the diligent is the person who is at it and gives their best to it is richly supplied 
we should work hard. Having the mere desire for provision does not entitle a person to provision. Let me say that again. Having the desire for something does not entitle or qualify us for that thing. The scripture says that the diligent, the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Uh, those who would work. Now, we need to recognize that there's a, there's a contrast here between craving and coveting and provision and wealth. The Proverbs make clear that sin is associated with coveting. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And it's the wicked who covets and craves and looks at things that they don't have and says, I want that. And they crave and they covet. And the, and the, the, the Scriptures tell us that that's a heart of sin saying that. It's a heart of sin to covet. It's a heart of sin to want what we do not have, especially when we're not willing to just get up and work for it. Proverbs 12, 11, and 12. I just want to read that. That's one that I'll turn to. Proverbs 12, 11, and 12 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. And so again, you see the wicked coveting the spoils of evildoers. Now, evildoers don't generally work the nine to five, do they? Like the, the rich and wicked are not generally showing up for the nine to five. They have found ways to manipulate um, the financial system or they've found a way to manipulate or even sell illicit uh, products or cheat people. Evildoers generally find a way to make more money to work less. In the scripture, it says the wicked looks at them and covets what they have. Oh, look at their life is so good. And yet they crave it, even though it's sourced out of sin and evil. But he says the root of the righteous bears fruit, bears actual fruit. There is a tilling and there is a watering and there is a labor that goes into it. And it actually bears fruit. Now, bearing fruit in contrast with spoils and treasures, that may seem pretty modest, right? It may seem pretty homely. Well, what do you mean, just fruit? The righteous just get fruit while the wicked get treasures and spoils? Well, yeah. It's kind of the way it is. It's kind of the way it is. We don't generally get paid millions of dollars for being righteous. Um, not saying that you can't be wealthy and have done it in a completely honest and integral way. I, I absolutely acknowledge that God um, has entrusted some with more and some with less. And no matter who you are, no matter how much you make, your integrity is what is most important. But we'll get to that a little bit more. We covet. We covet because the alternative often is work. It's easier to covet. It's just easier to wish than it is to actually work. And I'm speaking of myself included in this group. And so I pray that we as Christians would embrace and appreciate work. And because of that, we would devote ourselves to it. Whatever that is. Proverbs 10, 26, that um, the sluggard is like smoke in the eyes and vinegar on the teeth of the one to the one who sends him or her. So the sluggard is, is such a frustration to their boss because they're unreliable. May that never be spoken of us in that way. That we would be pleasing to our employers because we do what we say we will do. God even installs in nature examples for us. Proverbs 6, 6, look at the ant, you sluggard. Get down on your hands and knees and just 
look. Look what the ant is doing. Does it ever stop moving? Just work, 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 work. And they're dragging giant leaves. And sometimes they're working together. To, you know, they found a dead spider or something. And so they're, they're shuffling it along. And they're like, this is going to be a feast for a month for us. And they're dragging it down. And so like, if there's any crime in the animal kingdom, it's to step on an anthill. Because those things work so hard. I mean, man, you, I mean, I think that's what makes us most mad when our kids do and we're on a walk. Don't you ever step on an anthill. Instead, get down and look at them and learn from them because they work so hard. Look at the ant. And then Proverbs 26, 13. Oh, this is great. The, the, the sluggard. So there's a picture of a sluggard who puts his hand in his dish and, and actually the weight of the food that he picks up is too great to bring it to his mouth. So he goes hungry. That, that is the saddest picture of foolish laziness in the world. Like this pizza is actually too much to get to my mouth. There's such a foolishness ingrained with laziness. And then that same sluggard says in 26.13, there's a line in the street. I would, I'd be out there looking for a job right now, but there's a, did you see the lion? Now, there may have been a lion in the street or there may not have been, but the point is that the sluggard is looking out and just making sure there's no, like if there's any excuse for me not to go out and find a job, I'll find it. Now, I'm not, you know, if there's a lion right on your doorstep, maybe just wait till it moves on. But the lazy make excuses, right? The lazy make excuses not to do what we've been asked to do. And um, making excuses is, is contrary. It's contrary to the spirit that God's given us. It's contrary to the spirit of God. I mean, when we read Psalm 104, is there any room in there for God to be like, well, I would have stretched out the heavens, but um, it was raining that day. And um, I would have assigned the sea a limit, but I just forgot. And um, now the whole earth is flooded. Shoot. Right? I mean, God is so diligent. He, d- he does what he says he's going to do. And, and as we, as his covenant people, are a reflection and an extension of that. That we, we extend his reign in the earth by doing the things he's called us to do. To beautify the earth and to take care of things around us. You know, to get boxes in the mail when they're supposed to and all that good stuff. So number two, we should work hard. Number three, we should work with integrity and honesty. There are many ways to go about being paid, aren't there? You can get paid a lot of different ways in this world, especially now with the internet economy and you can get paid for having a YouTube channel and and telling people ridiculous things that don't even matter. As long as people watch you, you can get paid. Um... You can, get, you can get Instagrams now that are endorsed and people will advertise on you. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wild world that we live in. There's a lot of different ways to get paid. And I'm not really necessarily against any of them as long as you are reflecting Christ in what you do. If you're a YouTuber and you're getting paid 10,000 bucks a month to whatever, if you are reflecting Christ in that, then good for you. But the scriptures teach us that the most important thing in how we work is to be honest and have integrity, and be truthful in what we do. And very often that costs more wealth than it provides. Because there are many ways uh, to be paid dishonestly and sinfully. Proverbs eleven eighteen says that the wicked earns deceptive wages. The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness will earn a sure reward. That is such a cool contrast. Because the wicked will go about finding ways that are dishonest to get paid. Maybe you're self-employed and you can hide um, 
extra money in your quote that's just totally unaccounted for by materials or label, labor. Maybe you bill, maybe you work an eight-hour day and you just bill nine and a half. I mean, why not? If the employer's not there, just bill for a 10-hour day. You know, maybe you, maybe you bill for something and then you build it in a way that costs you less money so that it appears that you're delivering a product that you promised, but you're not. There's so many ways for us to earn deceptive wages. And this is the sad reality why at many um, places of employment, there's now clocks that you punch so that you can't lie. And even still, people say, like, they call in sick or they don't call in sick and they give their friend their punching card and some big companies, they don't notice that. So you get paid for a day that you're not there. I mean, I've worked in places like that and I've seen that and I've been self-employed and I've worked for a construction company where the boss is not usually around. So you, you have the opportunity to manipulate your hour sheet. You have the opportunity to do less than you've been asked to do and still get paid. And scripture says this is so, so alien to the Christian heart. The one who sows righteousness will earn a sure reward. Now, so that contrast with the wicked who earns deceptive wages. They can amass wealth very quickly. But then the righteous sows righteously and they earn a sure reward. Now, the only way that I can describe that is as a carpenter who is self-employed, whenever you're setting your price, the higher the price gets, there's a threshold and there's, a, there's almost a balance there where the higher your price gets set, the more you worry about conflict when it's time to bill, right? How can you charge me that much for that? Or I didn't see you that day. Or there's, there's an increased risk of that reward that you think you're getting flying away, only getting paid half of it or whatever. But the righteous who does everything with utmost integrity and honesty, and you give an honest bill to that customer, you know you're getting paid. You know they're not asking any questions. It's a sure reward. There's no, there's no negativity around it. There's no um, deception. There's even a proverb that says, the blessing of the Lord enriches and he adds no sorrow to it. So the wicked go out and they get paid a ton of money because maybe they've sold drugs and maybe they've cheated customers and they just moved to the next town when they're found out and they're wealthy, but man, is there ever sorrow in that? There's guilt and there's worry about the, um, the CRA. Like if you don't declare income and you think, well, this is great. I'm really rich right now, but I just hope I don't get audited. There is sorrow associated with that income. That's a sorrow that God doesn't want Christians to deal with. If you just act honestly, there's no sorrow associated with your reward. You can actually just enjoy it and bless others with it and not worried that someone's going to come along clawing it back. Although we try our best and sometimes the CRA just does that anyway. Um, so I'll go with that, but... You know, I've had to pay some bills that were, whoa, that happened? Um, so, you know, we just do things with integrity. Proverbs 20, 17 says something similar. Bread gained by deceit is sweet at first. Like, wow, that was easy. That's all I had to do to get this huge payday? Bread gained by deceit is sweet at first, but it turns to gravel in the mouth. There's no long-term blessing there's no long-term blessing in immoral or dishonest gain. Proverbs 21.6, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is little in righteousness than great revenue with injustice. So very often, yeah, I think integrity is associated with slightly less. You got to put up with a little bit less. You could go make more doing something else, being a little more dishonest, but better is a little bit in righteousness than great revenue with 
injustice. You know why? Because we can't, we can't say that we represent Christ. We can't say that we represent a good God and then enjoy our riches gained by deceit. We can't because it, it, it breaks down the message of justice that we're called to uphold through wisdom. So let your integrity be prized over your desire for wealth. Let your work speak for itself and earn whatever is right. If people pay you a lot for the work that you're good at, then good for you. Praise God, I'm thankful for that. But earn what is right. The Christian faith does not ignore how or where you get your money. And that's important for us. Proverbs also say that a man's gift makes room for him. So we don't often need to shove ourselves forward and demand um, for what we think we're good at because people will recognize your skills and, and you will be thanked for them and you will be used. So three, we should work with integrity and honesty. Four, we should work to profit and to bless others, not to be rich. We should work, hear the difference. We should work for profit. We should work for wages, but in order to bless others and use it for God rather than to be rich. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. So number one, it's, it's meaningless to try to store up riches because they don't profit us in the end anyway. 11.28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. See the contrast there? Some trust in their money as their security, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. 11.9 says, Better to be lowly, and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. So very often, because of our greed, because of our covetousness, um, we use work as a means of becoming rich and becoming more comfortable, right? If I work a little bit more, I can just take that extra day off, or I can buy that car that's a little more comfortable, or I can do whatever. We want to make ourselves more comfortable, so we mask our greed with Christian work ethic. That's very possible. We mask our greed with the Christian virtue of working hard, and we spend our money where it's going to make us look rich even when we're not. That proverb said, it's better to have, have a servant and be lowly than to play the great man but lack bread. I read an article in the Financial Post a few years ago where a financial planner visited an upscale neighborhood in Toronto to visit his clients. And there was a Porsche and a Mercedes in the driveway of this beautifully manicured uh, neighborhood. The children were both in this elite private um, school for young people. And when he went in, they ate all their dinners on um, patio chairs, plastic and cheap patio chairs. And he was, what is this? And they said, well, we just can't afford furniture right now. Playing the great man and literally lacking what was needful. They needed to keep up with the Joneses. That's where that phrase comes from. I got to have the Mercedes and the Porsche and it's going to suck us dry, but at least we'll look good. And when we can get around to it, we'll buy a fridge or we'll put some food in the fridge. I mean, how sad, how foolish. Our labor should be to prosper. Our work, whoever you work for, whatever you do, your home, your children, your work should be to bless and build up and profit those around you, our neighbors and our family, to provide real value for them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, Let the thief labor so that he may share good things with others. So when you're a Christian... The, the opposite of sin is not just to be neutral. Well, I used to be a thief and now I stopped stealing. Scripture says, if you were once a thief, you should change your life so much that now you're going out and working hard to bless other people, to give it away. That's Christian theology. 
It's not just stop sinning. It's use your means, your gifts, your talents to bless others because that is how we've been treated in God. Jeremiah 29, 4-7, I don't have time to read it, but God, when Israel went into captivity into Babylon, don't you think those people could have really just isolated themselves and said, oh, it really stinks that we're here. But God actually says to them, you know what? Go get jobs. Have children. Get married. Take care of your gardens. Beautify the city because when, when the city is blessed, you will be blessed. So God tells his covenant people, bless those around you. For in so doing, you will create a society and an economy based on God's goodness. Proverbs 31, we can't talk about work without looking at the, the diligent or the, or the virtuous woman who gets up early and she works hard and she looks well to the ways of her household. So our labor and our work should be done to help create prosperity and safety for others. Not just for comfort. Um, Proverbs 13, 22, this is wonderful. A good man, a good man leaves a, an inheritance for his children's children. Isn't that cool? A good man leaves an inheritance, not so that the kids can grow up in the silver spoon, not so that the kids can just live a comfortable, rich life separated from others, but with the prospect of possibly starting a business or investing or, you know what I mean? Wealth is, is meant as a tool to serve others and to, to serve our communities, not just to be, um, not just to be comfortable. And so the Bible doesn't anywhere speak against earning a lot of money or, or being well paid. The Bible says, how should you think about it? It should be to serve others and to reflect God's goodness in the world. Number five, we should work with us with excellence. We should work with excellence. There's a Proverbs 24, um, there's a passage where the man is walking past the vineyard of the sluggard and it's all overgrown with weeds and the door and the, the, sh- the shutters are falling off the windows and it looks terrible. The weeds are overgrown and the, the, uh, the grapes can't flourish and the person walking by says, mm, I learned something, a little folding of the hands to sleep, a little slumber and poverty will strike you like, a, like an armed man. And I just think in that, in that picture also, we just, see, we just see a slack work. We just see laziness. We just see things in, in poor condition. There is something that testifies to the goodness of God when we take care of ourselves, when we take care of our properties. You know, when we wipe the counters down after dinner. I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds menial. and like, what does this have to do with spirituality? But we reflect to each other who God is. Because I said, when we read Psalm 104, we see the valleys gushing out, um, out, what do they call those? The fountains. It feeds the beasts. Our homes can be hospitable to others when we take care of them, when we mow the grass and when we paint the garage door, whatever it is. And, and I'm speaking to myself. I have a lot of work to do to, to be a steward of what God has given me and to take care of it and to make sure that my work reflects my Savior's work in my life. So we should work with excellence and diligence. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes over only to poverty. And so that speaks of planning ahead. Think ahead. Make a strategy. If we fling ourselves around at every opportunity, that's what leads to poverty. But plan ahead. Think of a, a path forward for you and your family. Take time to consider it and think all, uh, think through all that you do. So that's... The Christian and work. Those are five ways the Proverbs speaks of work. And we can't miss 
We can't, we can't get through this without talking about Jesus' work. Jesus continually reminded the Pharisees around him, what's your problem? And, and they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna stone him at this one point. And he says, which one of my works are you going to stone me for? Was it the healing? Was it the feeding of the 5,000? Like, what are you going to stone me for? And they actually say, well, we want to stone you because you make yourself out to be God. And Jesus says, I am doing the works of God. I am working on behalf of God. I am doing the works that he is doing. Jesus says, uh, up until now, my father is working and I am now working. Christ came to, do, to be the vocation of his father, to redeem the world. In fact, the highest work that Christ speaks of, they say, what should we do to be doing the works of God, some who want to follow him? And he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent him. That you believe in him who sent me. That is the greatest work of God. The work of God is to enliven your heart to believe in and follow Jesus Christ because only then can we even begin to imagine living this way in the world, living a wise life for justice, righteousness, and equity, living wisely, working hard, working with diligence. The way that we work is inseparable from our faith. That's true in the lips of Jesus. It's true in the lips of Solomon. All labor belongs to God, no matter what your vocation, no matter what your circumstance that you believe might be preventing you from doing what you think you should be truly doing. God has set a purpose out for you, and it's not a mistake. Um, I just want to share about my family. Um, if this is any encouragement, if you think, well, I can't live up to these things. My family had a very unconventional relationship with work. My dad never worked outside the home from when I was a baby. He, had, uh, he, had sick, he has sicknesses that don't allow him to work the, the regular job that most men of his whatever intellect or strength were able to do. So he, he was a home, uh, a stay-at-home dad. And um, my dad, as a result of that, became a student of the scriptures. He knows his, his Bible so well, and he's able to teach others from the word. My dad was also at every single practice or game that I ever had as a hockey player or a soccer player. He coached. He was there for everything. He never missed anything for any of his sons, which, in hindsight, I realized what a precious gift that was. Beyond the paycheck he could have brought home, um, my dad was always, always there for me. And I think it was partially a result of the fact that he devoted himself um, to us as kids because of um, his, his freedom to do so. Now, that also meant a very difficult life for my mom, who had to go out and become a breadwinner um, when she was in her 30s and had three young kids at home. Instead of staying home like she wanted to and like many of her friends were able to do, she went and got one, sometimes two jobs, sometimes working nights, customer service. She was on the radio. She had a, a news show, in fact, um, on television, on CTS. I mean, my mom did what she had to do, and she worked harder than anyone I knew. And as a kid, I never lacked for anything. I never lacked for anything. Even though it's easy to compare and say, we don't have what they have. And then, and then. I had what I needed. And that's, that's my family's story. It's, and, and your story may be very different. And you may feel that you don't fit into the conventions of what work, what culture demands of you in work. But that's okay. Because God has something different for you than the nine to five or whatever you think it is that people expect of you. God expects of you something totally unique. Totally unique. And it's only for you to carry out. Not for me, not for somebody beside you. We need to all embrace the vocation and the life that God has given us no matter how it fits in or doesn't fit in with cultural expectations. You know why? Because we are culture makers. And the way we go about our lives describes whether or not God is with us. 
So whether you're a mom, you're a garbage man, you're a disabled person, you're a computer programmer, you're a sales clerk, you're a pilot or a preacher, God does not judge you how the world does. The hours you work or the money you make, but whether or not you set out according to the word to work the way that he worked, to work the way that he worked, with love and with diligence and whatever it is that he's given you to do. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might because in so doing, you reflect God's redeeming work in your life and that you work for him, not for man.